Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Jane. I'm an alcoholic. My, uh, my sobriety date is September 24th of 1996. Woo, 25 years, baby. Uh, and uh, right out of the gate, I like to share that my drinking run lasted for 14 years. And I am so grateful for this non-religious, spiritual journey that we're all on together. Like, I'm looking out at this audience right now, and it's like, what a bunch of miracles we all are. I know we should probably all be dead. You know, and I'm looking at Barbara, the Al-Anons, too. I <laughs> mean, after everything we put you guys through, oh, my gosh. So um, so anyway, I'm just really humbled to be up here in front of you. And, I, and it's because of all of you that I've learned to live this life honestly and lovingly and um, and just with tr- with truth. And that's a capital T. And um, and how lucky, you know, it was two years ago today that everything shut down. You know, um, and so how lucky are we that during these, uh, you know, uncertain times, we have this set of spiritual practices and spiritual principles that we can incorporate into our lives during times of difficulty. And I don't know about you, but uh, when I look back, I think about all the lessons that I've learned, you know, and so it's sort of like by uh, simplifying my external life, with so, which so often is chaotic. You know, I've really learned to be still and be quiet and hear the voice of God. Get rid of all those distractions of life. So I'm grateful for um, for this time, uh, you know, of, of solitude, if you will. Um, and I know that uh, I've also learned that not only is everything going to be all right, if I continue to live in the present moment, everything is all right, you know? That became so abundantly clear to me. And uh, one of the sayings that I always like is, um, I can't, my higher power can, I think I'll let it, you know. And I've done a lot of that. I've done a lot of turning it over. You know, it's, uh, it was a real opportunity to put step three into action, you know. And, um, and I feel like one of my mantras this year has been, if you want peace, be peace, you know. So anyway... Um, I feel like, uh, as so many people uh, said, Lee said it this morning too, uh, our dark past sometimes are our greatest gifts. So I'm here tonight to share with you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. So uh, you might sense from my accent, I'm not from down south here. I'm from the great state of New Jersey. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> and um, and I really grew up in an amazing family. My parents had seven kids, big Irish Catholic family. Uh, you know, we we uh, we were the family that took up a whole pew in mass every Sunday. And um, I always like to talk a little bit about my mom and dad to give you some context. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Her whole life revolved around her husband and her kids. My uh, my dad, I always like to boast about him a little bit, he was actually favored to be the first ever to break the four-minute mile in track. And he missed it. Are you ready? He ran a 4.00.02. 
And, uh, and I, I mention that because, of course, I'm bragging about him, but, uh, but also it just says a lot about his sense of discipline, his work ethic, his focus, and believe me, uh, he instilled that into all of us kids, you know. Um, and I, uh, I feel really fortunate that I had one of those really um, ideal childhoods. Sometimes I feel a little bit of survivor guilt about that when I hear some of the stories in AA. But I like to share that because, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of family we grew up in. We all end up here for some reason, right? Why try and figure it out? So um, so anyway, I'm going to go ahead and jump right to my first drink. <laughs> um, I was actually 14 years old, and my older cousin... Uh, took me and a bunch of her friends to the movies, and they had two bottles of rum and the uh, Coca-Colas. And we, we, I remember sitting in the seats, and she was dumping the rum into the Coca-Colas. And I love the symbolism of this. The movie was the original Star Wars. <laughs> and so we're talking, can you believe that was over 40 years ago now? Uh, anyway, uh, it, I couldn't have had a more perfect first drink experience because, let me tell you, I was sitting in that theater seat just like, Woo! Oh, my gosh, this is so cool! And, you know, I was flying around intergalactically with Han Solo in that Millennium Falcon, and, man, it took me out of this world and catapulted me into this whole new galaxy. And I freaking loved it, you know? I, I like to think that, like, well, I know that's the deep imprint that my first drink left on my brain. And, you know, I happen to believe that alcohol and drugs screws with your brain circuitry, but something really imprinted in my brain that that was the experience that I wanted to go for every single time I drank. You know, it was like plain Jane is gone. I enter extraordinary Jane, outrageous Jane, you know. I, my big goal in life was to, I wanted people when I walked into the room to be like, oh yeah, the party's about to begin, you know? And, um, and so I did everything I could, uh, you know, moving forward during my drinking days to be that, that Jane. And, um, and I'll tell you something, uh, I got so sick that I didn't want to drink again. So I share this part because in so many stories you feel like people, Say, you know, when they had their first drink, it was like it was the first time they felt right in their own skin, and they felt like, you know, they finally found a solution to their problems. That wasn't me at all. I was a party girl, man. I just wanted to party, have fun, be outrageous. And let me tell you, I'm living proof that if you drink that way hard enough and long enough over a certain amount of years, yeah, that brain circuitry switches over, and you need it. And that's, that's my story. But um, but anyway, I really didn't drink uh, heavily until I went to college, so I was a late bloomer. Um, I was the all-American kid in high school, um, and yeah, I, I mean, I was always, you know, gregarious and outgoing and stuff. Um, I always like to uh, mention, just because I like to honor her, um, not name-dropping, but one of my closest friends in high school was Whitney Houston. And, um, you know, can you believe she's been gone 10 years now, too? And um, and she was, I'm so fortunate because I got to know her before, who she really was before the end of her innocence. And she was lovely and delightful and funny and mischievous. And sadly, this, uh, this thing that we have took her down and took her down hard. And sadly, she's not with us. I think, uh, you know, we've all been robbed of her, her grace and her talent. 
So anyway, I'd like to share that once again. We were kind of honoring a lot of people, uh, you know, that aren't with us anymore, and I just thought that was that would be a nice time to give her a shout out. Um, so anyway, let's go to my my real drinking days that began when I was in college. So um, I had these grand aspirations of uh, you know being a doctor or a lawyer or something big that made a lot of money, <laughs> and. Uh, and I'll tell you something, uh, uh, it was like the Catholic girl school, uh, you know, sheltered Catholic girl, lived in a glass house, went off to college, and I was let loose in the biggest, baddest city on earth. I went to Manhattan College in New York City, and this was in the 1980s, folks. And uh, I always like to uh, sing a little ditty from the Eagles where it was everything, all the time, life in the fast lane. And let me tell you, I was in that fast lane, driving that car, and all of my dreams and aspirations went into the back seat. And, um, you know, I know we're not supposed to have an opinion on outside issues, but I have one. I loved them. I loved them. I love snorting cocaine. I love smoking weed. Uh, and I drank like you wouldn't believe. I, I used to, you know, I used to get jollies out of drinking everybody under the table. And, um, you know, I, I did, I mean, yeah. Uh, so anyway, you get the drift. And, um, and it, New York City in the 1980s, it was a, it was the clubs, man. It was a, I'm so grateful that I lived through those days because it was like Studio 54, the Peppermint Lounge, the Limelight, Roseland. Kamikaze Club. Uh, one of my claims to fame is I saw the Ramones and the Talking Heads at CBGB's. You know, I mean, I was just like, I was out there. The kids today call it FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. That was me. I was out there every night going crazy. I, like I said, I was a party girl. Uh, and it was me and the girls, you know? And um, so anyway, uh, it started to kill me by the time I was a junior. You know, it started to get hard doing that. So I had the first of many geographic changes, and I decided to move over to France. All right, so, by the way, um, I, w I went from, uh, from being a pre-med major into creative writing and, uh, and French. So I decided to move over to France junior year, spent that um, time over abroad, and I thought, oh, nobody knows me here, clean slate, fresh start, you know. And I moved in with this French family who had a 19-year-old nanny living with them, and we tore up that city of Nantes just like I was tearing up New York. And uh, and it was on. So, you know, I mean, th this has just became a cycle. And I'm going to kind of move quickly through, uh, the, you know, the rest of my, my geographic changes. So the France one was the first one. But I have to say, I did have a great time. Don't you love it when you're sharing this story every once in a while and somebody in AA will be like, Oh, Jane, you think you were having a good time. It's like, no, I was having a really good time. I can promise you that. <laughs> I was having a blast, as a matter of fact. I remember uh, the first stop was uh, Amsterdam to load up on our Magical Mystery Tour. Second stop was to get my hair done in London. You should have seen the way it, I mean, it had, it was shaved up one side, hot pink, before we were even getting hot pink hair, by the way. And, uh, yeah, white shoots coming out the front, punk rock. I, I tried it all on, punk rock, new wave, uh, rock and roll. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't do country. I was a Jersey girl. <laughs> Nobody's laughing at that here? 
Um, but, you know, I'll tell you something. I mean, I was the chameleon, trying everything on for size, you know. And I also was, like, raised in the time where, you know, I was Irish Catholic, right? We're supposed to, like, settle down and get married and have kids and stuff. And I knew that wasn't for me. I knew it. But there was a part of me that was like, hey, man, leave me alone. I'm just sowing my wild oats, you know. I'll calm down. I got this. I'm, I'll, when I'm ready, I'll stop. But it just went on. Um, so anyway, uh, went back, graduated from college. And because I kind of, you can probably tell, I kind of have a little bit of an innocent face, you know. And I can kind of talk my way into or out of a brown paper bag when necessary. And, um, and I got away with so much. So. My first job was teaching high school, <laughs> and I moved to a city called Hoboken, New Jersey. And Hoboken has the Guinness World Book of, of Records for having the most amount of bars in one square mile. And so I got an, a job. Uh, I was teaching high school by day, and I was working at an Irish pub by night. And the days turn into nights, and the nights turn into days, and it, I... I'll tell you, I don't know how I did what I did. Well, yes, I do. Chemical substances helped a lot. But, I mean, I just, like, this was, uh, the way that I considered myself back then, it was like I was just a risk-taking, rule-breaking, hell-raising, rock and roll, woo! As a matter of fact, you name the band, I saw them in Madison Square Garden. And I actually partied with quite a few of them, too. Uh, but, you know, it was just, you give me a, uh, you, you ask me to do, give me a dare, Believe me, I'll do it. And then I'll times two. You know, that's just how I was. And I was living, doing that, living high, teaching high school, too. So anyway, this is when my, um, you know, my family started to not invite me to family functions because, long story, but I would always embarrass my poor parents and my brothers and sisters would be like, <laughs> you were out of control. I was like, really? Oh, I don't really remember that. you like, that kind of stuff. And this is when my uh, morals started to slip. Every line that I said I would never cross, slowly but surely, I started to cross. I started marry, uh, dating a married guy that I was teaching high school with. And, but I always believed in God. And I'm going to share this story. This is how warped I was. So I, um, I would still go to Mass after being up all night, wasted. I remember, you know, here I am up all night. Drinking, doing cocaine, smoking weed with my married boyfriend, and I was scheduled to do the readings at Mass in my hometown that morning. I remember driving home, blasting my rock and roll, smoking my cigarettes with my vodka and some kind of juice next to me, pulling into the parking lot, looking out, seeing my whole family in the pew, and I remember the Monsignor was like, how you doing today, Jane? He's like, Ooh, rough night last night, huh? And I was like, yeah. And then I get up, and I, I remember I was doing the readings, and I said this. My, my brother still never let me live it down. This is a reading from St. Paul to the Filipinos. <laughs> Instead of the Philippians, you know. So anyway, <laughs> but I remember thinking, you know, God gets me. It's cool. God knows I'm just going through a phase. You know, God, you know I'm working this out. You know I've got a good heart. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff like that. All right, so I'm going to fast forward. I lost that first job teaching high school, second job teaching high school, third job teaching high school. And finally, I was like, i got to move far, far away. 
So a guy I taught high school with was like, I got the solution. You need to go teach English in Japan. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's it. Perfect. My family will be like, miss me and all this stuff. So I swear, I, I went on my interview, got the job. Two weeks later, I was on a, a plane to Japan. And I remember the guy sitting next to me was like,、uh, do you speak any Japanese? And I'm going to say this joke. I haven't said this one in a while, but it's true. I said, yeah, I know how to say domo arigato, Mr. Roboto. And, and I'm, I'm laughing because James and I actually saw sticks in、uh, Tallahassee like two weeks ago. And、um, I, sent my, I sent my sister a selfie, you know, and I got tears coming down my eyes. And she's like, oh, you must be so sentimental. All those sticks songs coming on. It's like, no, I'm crying because you should see this crowd. It's geriatric. I'm old, man. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Anyway,、um, so yeah, off I go to Japan, and I'm going to quickly talk about Japan because it's there that、um, I crossed yet another line.、Um, I got offered a job teaching English at like this big Japanese company. It was actually Time Life Educational Services, and I had to, I had to teach. Uh, Japanese businessmen English, and they were being sent overseas after they took my intensified class, right? So they had to speak English at all times. I had to eat breakfast with them, lunch with them, dinner with them, and every night we would go out drinking. And this was a month long class, right? So I mention this because this is when I realized I needed a drink first thing in the morning just to get right, you know?、Um, And then I looked forward to sneaking off to my room and having a bunch of drinks alone to get right for the afternoon session. And then five o'clock, it was on. You know, I don't know if anyone can relate with that, to that, but yeah, I mean, that was when I definitely crossed that line. And,、um, and, you know, so I went over to Japan for one year. I ended up hooking up with a bunch of crazy, Australians, Brits, New Zealanders, Canadians. I mean, and they were all drinking like I was drinking. And we would have been arrested on the regular if we were doing some of the shenanigans that we were doing over in Japan here. And、uh, so it was so easy to live there. I stayed for three years, living as a, truly a functioning alcoholic and having a lot of fun, though. But this is when those dark times started to kick in, too. And,、um, and I'll tell you something. I remember、um, recently I, I went to visit a friend of mine in England, and this kind of sums it all up, right? She had a journal entry, and it said, My friend Jane decided to cut back on her drinking, which means she didn't drink for lunch on Thursday. <laughs> and、um, so, anyway, I moved back home. I get home. You know, I think everyone's going to be like, oh, yay, she's home, yeah. Instead, they were like, oh, God, she's back, you know? And that would, I, see if you can relate to this. That would set me off. It's like, you think I'm such a black sheep? Watch this. And I would go out and do something intentionally self harmful, like to get at my family for making me feel like the black sheep or a piece of crap, you know? And,、uh, oh, you think I'm that bad? <laughs> Watch this. And I would do something, like I said, very self harmful. And,、um, and this went on for a while, but I got my first DUI, like within weeks of getting back to the States. And,、um, you know, the first DUI, I was like, oh, well, you know, every, I, I've been driving drunk for years. It was going to happen sooner or later, right? You know? 
So, um, and then because my family was acting the way they were, I was like, I think I need to get out of here again, you know? And um, so I decided, a friend of mine had a restaurant in Florida, so this is how I ended up in Florida. And I said to him, you know, I just want to get away. I just, you know, I need to just start fresh somewhere. And he's like, you need to come down here. So I kid you not, I had every intention of starting a new sober lifestyle, and I moved down to the Florida Keys. (laughs) Now, you can only imagine what a failed experiment that was. But the Florida Keys is where I hit that incomprehensible demoralization that our book talks about. The Florida Keys is where I lost those jobs hostessing and waitressing within, you know, days, really. And I had what I like to refer to as my months of fade to black. And um, I became homeless. Um, I remember walking around barefoot with a bottle of pop-off vodka in my hand. Forget about uh, you know, snorting coke. I was smoking crack. Um, and, you know, and I just didn't care if I lived or died. It was like I didn't have the courage to kill myself. But, um, you know, I figured I'll just blow my heart up or, you know, do a leaving Las Vegas and drink myself to death. And, um, and yeah, and that's, that's the role I was on. And I had the proverbial look in a mirror and see this skeleton. I mean, I literally got down to like 85 pounds. I was black and blue, bruised. Anything I touched would just cause a black and blue mark. And I had the wherewithal to call a cousin up in Fort Lauderdale. And she came and got me. And I kind of tried to get it together. Um, but it never really happened, never really stuck. I mean, AA never even mentioned, uh, was mentioned to me or I didn't even think I had a problem. I thought I could still handle everything. So the long and short of this story is I met a guy. And um, he was he was living in Austria at, at the time, and I was temping at this little agency in Fort Lauderdale for Delta Dream Vacations. And they were doing, um, you know, uh, like um, ex-adventure tour packages, like, you know, things that were a little crazy, uh, like like cycling cycling through Europe or glacier climbing or rappelling mountains or whatever. And um, he would come into town like once a month. And I remember this one time he came into town, he was like, you know, I really want to go down to Florida and uh, to the Keys and check out the water sports. And I was like, oh, God, he wants to go down to the Keys. Uh, You know, I really hit the skids down there, man. And then I was like, all right, let's go. (laughs) You know, and off we went. First tiki bar we hit, we started pounding drinks. And we did that all the way down to Marathon, Florida, which is like in the middle of the Keys. And I I had this great idea. It was like, um, you know, let's, uh, yeah. Oh, and I want to say, too, well, anyway, I'll say that in a little while, in, in a little bit. But, you know, I really cared about him, but it wasn't like, you know, he was my one and only or whatever. Um, As a matter of fact, that's another part of my story that I forgot to talk about earlier, but I think it's worth mentioning because it also shows an important part of the cycle that I had. It was like I would pick up guys, right? And then I would, because it was like, I don't know, feeling my self-esteem or something. It was like I, I wanted to capture them, but then I didn't, I wanted it to end there, you know? Like I just was incapable of having a, a, a normal relationship. It was like almost like a power thing. And then, oh, well, anything else that happens is inconsequential. So I had, like, this series of, you know, 
relationships where it was actually almost semi-consensual. You know what I mean? And then I would feel this horrible shame and guilt and disgust afterwards that um, the only thing that would dilute those feelings of shame and guilt and worthlessness was to pick up a drink and start it all over again, you know? And so that became like uh, a theme. And so Max was one of those guys. And so we, you know, here we go drinking down, down to this, um, you know, this key in the middle of the keys. And I had this great idea. Let's go down and watch the sunset. So um, off we went, watched the sunset, had a bag of weed and a case of beer. And, um, you know, we did that, and we watched the sunset. Then we went out drinking. A friend of mine's band was playing and went out partying. And I had another great idea about 2 in the morning. Let's go back down to that bridge and watch the sun come up. Now, this time I remember seeing a sign that said, Authorized Vehicles Only. And I was like, oh, well, vehicles, <laughs> let's go. And um, and so off we went, and we're driving down this road, and it was almost as if I said, oh, my God, where did that bridge come from? Uh, it, it just like came, I mean, you know, like, it, it's like this road to nowhere. It was different from it, from what it was earlier, you know. And so we're going down the road, and all of a sudden I went around this little curve, and Bam! I went barreling. And when I tell you this thunderclap, I still hear it. It went through my head, this crash. And this this lightning bolt of pain shot through my very core. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I opened my eyes, and the, and there were smoke and, and fire and everything coming out. And I was like, oh, my God, Max, we got to get out of here. It's going to blow. It's going to blow. How are we going to get out of here? And I remember putting my hand down to my ankle, and I felt bones in my ankle. And my uh, my my knees hit the dash, and um, and my so my whole pelvis was smashed, and I couldn't move my left side because, unbeknownst to me at that time, I broke my neck at C1, C2. And um, and I was just like, oh my god! And what we did was we barreled right into the concrete barrier and unbeknownst to me they had just filmed that movie true lives with arnold schwarzenegger and they blew up the seven mile bridge and this was the old seven mile bridge and we crashed right into the barrier that on the other side of the barrier was the water and uh so anyway i just remember max max wake up wake up we gotta get out of here we gotta get out of here and max just looked like he was sleeping or he was passed out but I think you all know what I'm about to say. You know, Max was dead. <sighs> and I remember just thinking, God, please just take me to. There's no way I'm going to be able to live with myself. And, um, you know, and I remember just breathing, saying all my Catholic schoolgirl prayers, you know, like, oh, God, please, you know. And um, I thought about my family. I thought about his family. And I just remember, um, and I'm going to share this because um, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I feel compelled to. But the police officer that found me that night, 
said that he actually had a spiritual experience because he was going down the regular road, you know, the regular seven-mile bridge, and he said it was as if something tapped him on the shoulder, told him to back his car up and go down that road. And he said when he saw the crash, it was like he almost wasn't surprised. That's how strong the message was for him to go down that road. And when he shared that for me, it really it really helped me because I thought, you know, I'm, try- I'm going to be trying to figure out, you know, why I'm left here, you know, like, what, you know, I should be dead. Why did God leave me here? And maybe because of what that police officer told me, it was because I was left here for a reason, you know. And um, and so anyway, I'm going to fast forward. I got heliported to Miami. I ended up staying in the regular hospital for um, for six months. Then I had to go to a rehab hospital for six months. And um, it was when I was in the um rehab hospital I remember my dad came to see me and um and man my family was mad they were mad my mom was furious as a matter of fact my mom and I didn't talk for two years and um and my dad I remember the first thing I said to my dad when I was when I woke up was it didn't happen because I was drinking can you imagine the denial that we have oh now that we're on the other side, we can see that only something spiritual could shatter that crazy denial that's a part of what this thing that we all have. So um, so then I, um, I got let out on my own recognizance because the state didn't want to pick up my intensive physical therapy that I had to undergo. And that is when I went, the judge said I could go leave the house to go to AA meetings and to go to physical therapy. That was it. So I lived in St. Pete Beach, and I went to a 7 a.m. AA meeting every morning, and you people saved my life. You know, you took the place of my mother, who at this time bailed on me. Um, You told me things like, you know what, Jane, you need to drop that fierce Irish pride that you have and start to sink to a place of humility. You need to start... Uh, stop pointing the finger of blame on at everyone else and start accepting responsibility for what you've done. You know, um, you need to, step one, which is we, uh, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and their lives had become unmanageable. You all told me things like, this was the first step towards the solution. You know, you told me things like, there's great power in powerlessness. Okay, I could get that. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you told me stuff like, um, you know, if you accept step one, the change is going to come. You told me things like if I bought into the 12-step program, you know, you're going to learn to give up, clean up, make up, and grow up. I love that. So I loved all the little lines, you know. And um, But what I heard most was step, from step one was you got to get honest, you know. And so that... I decided to do, and um, when it came down to my sentencing, you know, uh, even my attorney was like, we're going to plead not guilty, that road should have been blocked off, blah, 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 and I was like, no, I was guilty, and because of me, a precious life is no longer here, so I am going to plead guilty, I know I'm going to prison, let's get the show on the road. So, um, so anyway, that's what I did, I pled guilty, and I got sentenced to five years in prison, followed by 10 years of probation. And I am here to tell you that I am so grateful that I got those five years in prison. I'm not just saying that. 
I needed to go on a mining expedition to find out who I was without alcohol and drugs because I had no idea, you know? Um, I really feel like um, I was able to learn that, uh, that I needed to abandon that pride, you know? And I feel like there's so many things that I, I learned when I was in there. Um, some of them were um, I learned to be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection because that would diminish my usefulness to others. And I really learned the true value of service work when I was in prison. You know, um, I started a literacy program, and I also helped um, women to study for their GED. And if there's anybody in here that works corrections, thank you, because you made a difference in my life. And I want to give you a, a round of applause right now if you do. But I learned to drop my pride and to sink into this place of humility. And let me tell you something. Prison's a good place to do that because you are debased, demeaned, degraded on the daily in there, you know. Um, I also learned how to handle my, uh, my two biggest character defects, being judgmental. By the way, I remember right before I, I, my tragedy happened, I was on a dinner date with a guy who told me over dinner that he did time in prison, and I was like, oh, I'm never going out with that guy again, you know? <laughs> I mean, I was so judgmental. And then the other one is resentments. And let me tell you a little bit about resentments in prison. My family decided, they must have had a family meeting, to not send me any money the whole time I was in prison. Now, if you were in prison, you know you need some money, right? For canteen and to whatever. Can you imagine how humiliating that was? But James always loves when I do an imitation of my mother. Oh, you think we're going to send you money when you're in prison being punished so you can buy Coca-Colas and drink, or drink uh, Coca-Colas and eat potato chips? I don't think so. You know, you're in there being punished, and, you you know, you deal with it. And uh, so, yeah, so I really didn't, I wasn't able to, you know, uh, and, and this is another one of my resentments is that I didn't write Orange is the New Black because, man, I would have wrote, written a way better book. Uh, and uh, the name of one of my chapters would have been definitely, I'm nobody's boo because my ass is broke. <laughs> I know the girls in the treatment center get that one. <laughs> but anyway, um, what I learned most in prison is how to be patient and tolerant and loving and kind. And I also learned how to take a good, cold, hard look at my past. So um, so anyway, um, let me see what time it is. Okay, so um, let me just talk now a little bit about um, doing some of my step work. And I want to talk quickly about steps four and five. So when I did step four, I remember I wanted to do, write like an autobiography, you know, I wanted, because whoever it was, talk about ego, whoever it was that I was doing my fifth step with, I wanted them to get the full context of who I was, you know, instead of those, you know, columns and, you know, just bits and pieces. So, so I, my, I remember my sponsor was like, okay, Jane, go ahead, do it that way. And then one Sunday, a Catholic priest came in to say mass and he said, Hey ladies, I just want you to know, uh, I'm an alcoholic and I got permission from the warden to do fifth steps. And I was like, and he was Irish Catholic from New Jersey. I was like, sign. Okay. Sign me up. And, uh, you know, let's kill two birds with one stone confession, fifth steps. So that's exactly what we did. And let me tell you, my fifth step was where I really was able to put humility to the test. As a matter of fact, I remember the first thing that he said to me was, 
One of his favorite books was The Spirituality of Imperfection. And I remember him saying to me, you know what, Jane? I'm not okay. You're not okay. And that's okay. I want you to be vulnerable with me. I want you to not hold back. I want you to know I'm not going to judge you. I want you to receive forgiveness, but also give it to um, and then he went on to, I mean, he was really something. And we're still friends today, by the way. Uh, he, he pointed out so many of my self-destructive patterns. Um, and I'll tell you something. It was the first time that I really felt, this is what marked my re- return to sanity. It was after my fifth step. It freed my mind. It freed my heart. It changed my relationship with everybody who I knew. And it also, most importantly, changed my relationship with God. And um, I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk about my steps eight and nine, too. And, oh, my gosh, there's such wisdom in steps eight and nine. You know, we do. We have to go back, and we have to rectify the wrongs that we've done to people if we want to continue to have a future relationship with them. So uh, step eight, man, when I put it down on paper and I saw the human wreckage that I left in the wake of me, my tornado, it was really sobering. Unintended, and uh, and I'll tell you something. It was um, it was my willingness to clean up my side of the street that um, that really got me through my step eight, and then of course step nine. Oh my gosh! And I did step nine in the form of letters. You know, I and I, I have to say this too. I also did it with the discernment of my um, my sponsor. You know, definitely get get that to, uh, assistance with your sponsor when you're doing step nine. And uh, But I feel like step nine is when we put the pedal to the metal. You know, I broke laws. I broke hearts. I needed to make all that stuff up. And I'm not going to get into um, what happened, but I do want to share one really cool thing. I got a phone call um, right at the beginning of COVID, and it was not a, not a phone call, an email. And it said, uh, Dear Jane, I just wanted to know, um, are you the person that was in the car accident with Max um, because uh, I just got I I was cleaning out my closet and his mother sent me this newspaper article and it had your name in it and I just wanted to see if this person was actually you and I, I was like oh! you know and that part never got cleared up his family you know I never wanted to uh, meet with me or anything so it was always this thing that was left hanging you know and um, and I remember my sponsor saying, Jane, you've got to let that go. That's between them and their God, and now this is between you and your God. You've got to move forward with this. But it was always left there hanging. And I worked with Diz on this, too. And Diz wanted me to go to his family in West Virginia and um, make amends. And I was like, Diz, I got a bad feeling about that. There's no way I can do that. They won't even, you know, respond to me or anything. And Diz, he's from West Virginia, so he checked it out with a bunch of people. And come to find out, he came back to me and he said, you know what, Jane? You were right. It's not a good idea to do that. I talked to some people who know his family, you know. And um, so it was always left hanging. And um, so I get this email and from this guy, and so I wrote him back, and I said, yes, this is Jane, who was in the car accident. And he said, would you be interested in talking to me over the phone? And I was like, yeah, how about tonight? And he said, that sounds great. And then he wrote, P.S., I'm a friend of Bill. And I was like, oh, my God. 
So anyway, here we are, you know, over 20 years later, and God drops this angel in my life. And I was able to make an amends to somebody who loved him. And I just said, I'm so sorry, you know, for for being responsible for the killing your best friend in that car accident. And, you know, and he said, you know, I forgive you. And, you know, I just want to let you know, I want to tell you some stories about him, too. And uh, he felt like he needed to tell me some things, too. And that made me feel better, you know. Um, and so anyway, I mean, that's the way God works in my life, you know, all those years later. And I was able to make a, a direct amends to somebody who represented him. And um, so now uh, I'm looking at the time. Okay. So let me tell you about when I got out of prison. Okay. The miracles, and I'm trying, I'm going to try and do this with energy. The miracles just came tumbling down, folks. All right. So, yeah. Woo! The first one, and you know me with my rock and roll. I remember I had a hefty bag. I got into the taxi. I couldn't believe the song that was playing on the radio. And I started crying. And the cab driver was like, are you okay? And I'm like, I just got out of prison after five years, and this song is playing on the radio. And he turned it up, and we both started singing together. I'm as free as a bird now. I mean, what kind of a sign is that? It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and then I dropped my stuff off, and I went to um, Central Group 909 in Tallahassee. And I walked in, and Coach Bob said, you know, young lady, you'll never be alone again. And I turned around, and guess who was at that meeting? The women who brought the meeting into prison, they were like, oh, my God, when did you get out? I was like, today. They were like, what? I mean, it was just like, and they had no, I had no idea that that's where they went to meetings. So, I mean, it was all these, you know, I guess they call them Godwinks that started right from the very beginning. Here's another big one. I um I remember my ther I had to go to therapy. Oh, he, uh, let me tell you this. I lost my license for life. Uh and I had to go to an AA meeting every day for 10 years. That was my probation. Even my probation officer was like, "Man, I never heard this before." I'm like, "Yeah, this is pretty crazy." So I got an apartment right by the AA house in Tallahassee. And what? Oh, yeah, yeah. I got an apartment right by the house. What, what did I just say? Something weird? Okay. And I started going to my meetings every day. And, um, yeah, and I rode my bike everywhere. As a matter of fact, I rode my bike everywhere for 23 years. And um, so I want to tell you, uh, my therapist had said, hey, Jane, a bunch of us are going to a women's AA retreat this weekend. This was about a month out of prison. And I was like, Oh, that sounds really fun. You know, I had no idea what she was talking about. But I went. And um, and I remember the first woman speaker that I ever saw was this little woman with white curly hair. And she's like uh, talking about being a military mom and she abused her two sons and this and that. Well, guess what? That woman today is my mother-in-law. I mean, so God's hand was in my story like from the very beginning, it blows my mind. And um, and anyway, I was able to rebuild my relationship with my family. Oh my gosh, my mom and dad are so proud of me. Uh, they actually, I'm going to see them next week for spring break. Dad's 90, mom's 86, and now mom is like, 
Oh, yeah, my daughter Janie. Uh, yeah, she's a professor now at Florida State University, you know. I mean, so that's a, another part of my story. I went back to grad school. I got my MSW. Um, and I'll tell you something. It wasn't easy. There was always, uh, you know, something like red tape or something that I had to jump over. But I thought to myself, and I want you women who are in uh, the treatment programs to listen here, I would look people in the eye and I would say, where would any of us be without forgiveness? Where would any of us be without a second chance? Please just give me a chance. I promise I won't let you down. And um, so I got denied Florida State, not once, twice. I finally got in the third time. And I got an assistantship scholarship. So um, I, what I learned is there, you know, people want to be a part of a success story. So don't give up. If you keep doing the right thing, you deserve all this stuff. All this stuff. And I'm not just saying that. I'm getting choked up. Secondly, I got my first job as an MSW in a detox center. How perfect is that? And I went to my meetings and I, you know, I, um, I rode, I worked in a hotel, making minimum wage. I didn't care. I loved it. I was working towards getting, you know, just, it wasn't about money. It was about succeeding in life. And, um, and so anyway, gifts kept rolling in, uh, one after the other. And I want to, uh, finish off with a couple of major ones. So, um, I, I remember I got a call from the dean at the College of Social Work after I had been a social worker out in the field for about six years. And he said, Jane, would you be interested in a faculty position? I was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> you know, of course I would. And um, I just had my third promotion. I've been there since 2008. So I am a teaching professor at Florida State University in their College of Social Work. That is a miracle. Let me share this. This is an unbelievable, fresh miracle because it just happened yesterday. Yesterday, I just found out that I will be teaching two classes at Charles University, which is the oldest university in Europe. It's in the Czech Republic in Prague this summer. I mean, can you imagine? This is like stuff that dreams are made of. So I'll be, James is going to come with me. We're going to be living in Prague for, for the summer, and I'll be teaching there. You know, and meanwhile, like 20 years ago, I was sitting on a prison bunk, you know. So uh, never put a limit on your dreams, you know, and always know that it's never too late to be the person that you were truly meant to be. And I want to tell you this other miracle. All right, so... Um, my mother, who is now my biggest fan, I got hit by a car and I got uh, into a bike accident with somebody else. So um, my mother was like, this is crazy. Janie's in her 50s now. What do they expect her to be riding her bike when she's an old lady? I mean, this is just insane. She's doing the right thing and this is just unbelievable. I'm writing to the governor. So she started writing to the governor of New Jersey to try and get rid of my first DUI. And, you know, Jersey doesn't expunge DUIs, so that's why it's like, I'm never going to get my, you know, it's never going to happen. Well, guess what? Somehow, that letter, she kept getting letters back from the gatekeeper. Somehow that letter ended up in the right hands. And on his last day of office, I get this phone call from Jersey. And I'm like, James, it's New Jersey. He's like, really? And I answer the phone. It's like, hello? 
Jane, this is Governor Chris Christie from New Jersey. I was like, what? Oh, my God. And, and he just, I started crying and screaming, and he was laughing. And no matter what your political affiliation is, he was just a down-home Jersey guy that night. And he was like, let me tell you something. Your mother is something. She keeps sending me this stuff. I got your folder. And I looked through it, and oh, my God, I can't believe everything that you've done. And you make the great state of New Jersey proud. And um, I want you to know that I have a lot of people whose lives have been saved by the 12-step program that you're in. And I just want to say you just keep on doing what you're doing, girl. And um, I'm going to give you a pardon for that first DUI. So after... After 23 years, I got my license back. And, uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. And this last presidential election was the first time that I was able to vote in 24 years. And, uh, you know, a lot of my friends are like, why does it mean so much for you to be able to vote? It's like, are you kidding me? Because when you can't vote, it's still society saying you're less than. You don't have a voice. You don't matter. And so it really eats away at your psyche, you know. So I really feel like, you know, I'm 100% back now. Uh, you know, it's just amazing. And, and you know, as far as making amends for my family, I just am a living amends. I remember my dad saying, you know what, Janie, the best apology is changed behavior. And, uh, and I have definitely uh, lived up to that. I have li- made a commitment to make a living amends and to live the best life that I could live. And I want everyone to know that each of us is way more than the worst thing that we've ever done, you know. And um, and really, we need to, uh, I want to say this again to the uh, women in treatment, stop focusing on your failures and instead become motivated for your real purpose, and that is being useful to other people. And um, with that, I know Diz always told me to read something from the big book to close, so here I go. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. This thing works. It really does. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.